Welcome to another episode of Virtual Recollection, where we tell stories about video games and the people who play them. I'm your host, Janessa, and joining me today is a familiar voice if you've listened to the No Continues podcast, Janio. Thanks for being my partner in crime for this episode, Janio. Of course. Thanks for tagging me in. The theme of this episode is Mega Man, everyone's favorite blue bomber. In case you're unfamiliar with the series, Mega Man made his debut on the original Nintendo Entertainment System in March of 1987. The series would go on to release over 100 Mega Man titles across all platforms of video game systems, handheld and console. Today, the franchise has sold more than 30 million games worldwide, making it hands down one of the most successful video game franchises in the world. On today's episode, you'll hear stories about how Mega Man has helped build bridges where before there were none and teach you to be resilient in the face of unrelenting failure. And we'll wrap up with an awesome interview with Mega Ran, the first recording artist to ever be licensed by Capcom, the studio that created and developed Mega Man. So without further ado, welcome to Virtual Recollection. that first you fall from Mega Man Mountain, climb and climb again. As we mentioned earlier, the first game in the Mega Man series was released on the original Nintendo Entertainment System, which you'll frequently hear being called the NES within the gaming community, in 1987. Six total Mega Man games would be released on the NES stateside, which is a pretty impressive library for a game system with a 10-year lifespan in the States. Years ago, I embarked on what you could call a journey to beat all six of the Mega Man games on the original Nintendo. Now, the thing some listeners might not know about the NES games, particularly the Mega Man series, is that they are harshly unforgiving and incredibly difficult. They are not at all meant for the weak of will. But you'll find that the silver lining in that is, if you persevere and manage to make it to the top, it's incredibly rewarding. Here's Janio's story. My gaming tastes, strengths, and weaknesses. My stubborn patience both inside and out of a console. My ability to let go. Looking back at my life with Mega Man, I can see how the Blue Bomber influenced me in a variety of ways. While the Sega Master System was my gateway into a life of video games, the NES was my first true love in the medium. I quickly found out that adventuring in top-down dungeons was my cut. Getting keys and smacking dudes with swords and yo-yos processed extremely well in my six-year-old head, and I felt like a badass. Later on, puzzle games like Tetris and Adventures of Lolo flexed my developing strategic mind. To this day, I most excel when it comes to solving rooms in Uncharted, putting together a Magic the Gathering draft deck, or taking the best turn-based route in an ATB-driven classic Final Fantasy. Give me a minute to go into the tank, and more often than not, I'll come out on top. What I was terrible at and am still below par on today, is platforming. And action. So how tragic a tale, then, that my favorite games on the NES were of the Mega Man variety, the premier action platformers of a generation, possibly of all time. I owned, if I remember correctly, Mega Man 3, 4, 5, and 6, rented Mega Man 2 a bunch, and never beat a single one. Once in a 2000X moon, I can make it to the first stage of the endgame Dr. Wily stages, only to come to the realization that without all of the energy tanks and extra lives saved in the world, and factoring in my platforming prowess, 
I would never reach the good doctor himself. It was here, always going after Hardman first and dying every time, that I hardened my patience. Mega Man fascinated me too much to give up on it, or even be mad at it. It was a master class in gameplay, so when I died, it was my fault and I knew it. I could have compared notes with my friends on which order to fight the bosses, but truth be told, after learning my limitations in the genre, I settled on wanting to just play the levels that had my favorite music. So shout out to my boys Pharaoh Man and Flashman. Now, fast forward 20 years, and I'm working at a local retro video game store in Bellingham, Washington. Every time a Mega Man game came through the shop, I couldn't stop thinking about the enemy designs, the music, the difficulty. Most prominently, I kept reminding myself that I never fully climbed Mega Man Mountain. Wily was still at large. The countless victories of his robot sergeants lingering in my mind. Then, one day, a perfect-looking NES was traded in, and I bought it, alongside a copy of Mega Man 2. My goal? To finally, once and for all, beat a Mega Man game, and beat it with no continues. Like I mentioned before, without all of the energy tanks and extra lives gathered from a no continues run, I knew there was no way this bucket list item would ever come to fruition. For months, I sat down a few feet away from my TV and my NES, just like I did as a little dude, and screen by screen I learned the game. Enemy movement, where to launch myself to make the next platform, the location of extra items, the timing of shots and pitfalls. I read my father Colin Moriarty's game fact like it was a holy book. I let my NES run through the middle of the night in the middle of a level because there was no other option. And after a summer's worth of time, Bellingham's most beautiful season shining right past me, I did what I thought to be impossible. I beat a Mega Man game, and with no continues. The best part about all of this? Mega Man 2 is, without a doubt, the easiest of the Mega Man games. But did I care? Not at all. With Wily begging for my forgiveness, I started celebrating in my room as if the Mariners were to finally win a World Series. It was my favorite video game moment, 25 years in the making. Dr. Wily ate my lunch for decades. Skullman kicked me while I was down. I figured out a way to beat Centaur Man, only to be dropped by friggin' Plant Man. Toad Man's storm pushed me into oblivion over and over, but I got up. I stole my lunch back. And I kept moving forward. Mega Man without me realizing it for years, taught me resilience. More than anything, putting my mind to completing a Mega Man game showed me that if I want something bad enough, and I fight like 20 years have tried to keep me down, I just might get it. Two of our episode, the family that kicks Dr. Wily's butt together tolerates each other. While siblings have been fighting since the dawn of time, one of the few things to foster a ceasefire has been the miracle of video games. In this case, the peacemaker was Mega Man 2, a decade after its release in a small rural town of Pullman, Washington. My stepsister and I, recently thrown together in a newly blended family, were trying to figure out how to live together, let alone like each other. 
And while you can't choose your family, you can always choose metal blades. And sometimes all you need to forge a friendship with your sister is to take down a maniac robot scientist together. When I was 10 years old, my mom and dad got married. Along with a new father, I received two older stepsisters and a transplant to a new city and a new school. This was an interesting time for everyone involved. Up until that point, I was the only child, and often found myself mildly jealous of my cousins and their siblings. Suddenly, like a birthday wish being granted, I had two siblings as well, Jessica and Erica. Erica is my second oldest stepsister. When my parents married, she and I didn't have a ton of common ground to build off of. She was 14, well into being a teenage girl and everything that embodied. I was a chubby 10-year-old with glasses, unfortunate hair, and an even more unfortunate sense of fashion. While Erica listened to popular music and went to dances, I hung out with my friend Alicia in her basement playing Ocarina of Time and eating bagel bites. Really not a lot of overlap going on. Erica and I fought a lot, and typically over what I now understand to be incredibly stupid things. One time, a simple act of baking cookies turned into a screaming match when it was discovered that the style that we typically use to mix ingredients conflicted with each other. Ever since she could remember, Erica mixed the dry and the wet ingredients separately until the very end when she would then mix them together, while I had always just mixed the ingredients together at once in the same bowl. To me, it made no logical sense to keep the ingredients separate, and only resulted in another bowl to wash. Frankly, it still doesn't make logical sense, but that's besides the point. We got in a fight, and I don't remember who won. I don't even remember if we finished making the cookies that time. When you blend two families, the little things that make a family's culture special and unique suddenly are at odds with each other, and many times when this happened, we would have to abandon what we grew up with to compromise for something new that nobody really liked. From a kid's point of view, that's a lot of lose-lose. If you were to ask my parents what blending two families together was like, they would probably tell you it's very similar to what happens when two galaxies collide. Messy, chaotic over long periods of time, and just hoping for the best. But sometimes, we would be stuck at home together, and sometimes we weren't in the middle of some kind of petty sibling war. The occasion was rare, but existent. earlier that Erica and I didn't share a ton of common interests, but on one especially boring and slightly peaceful day, she found an old Nintendo entertainment system in the basement hall closet. We had no inkling at the time, but that old game console would be the key to finding some kind of common ground together. We pulled it out, and after fiddling with the RF cable, we flipped through the games, slid Mega Man 2 into the console, and turned it on. It didn't take us long to realize how difficult the game was, but after completing a few levels, we realized that the game would give you a password key so you could pick up where you left off. This was huge for us. It meant that we could stop playing at any time and not have to worry about losing our progress. It meant that we had a fighting chance at actually beating the game. To this day, I'm not entirely sure why we settled on Mega Man. Maybe it was the only game that could hold our attention for long enough. We could never land the plane in Top Gun, so we never got past the first level. The Legend of Zelda 2 made no sense to us. It wasn't clear where we needed to go. We could only get to the same level in Super Mario Brothers before we got stuck and died every time. An Excite Bike was anything but exciting. For hours, we sat in front of the old tube television our parents kept in the corner for the gaming systems and took turns playing. It amazes me that while something as trivial as mixing ingredients could send us into a spiral, we were able to pass the controller back and forth peacefully. 
We strategized which bosses were the best to start with, which made the climb to Wiley himself manageable, documenting the passwords along the way. In a way, Mega Man helped Erica and I build a bridge together. There was finally some kind of foundation, however small, where a friendship could begin to grow. It no longer felt like we were walking on glass around each other. The fights started to get fewer, and the friendship grew, little by little. Our house became less of a battleground and a little bit more like a home. A few summers ago, I was helping my mom clean out my old room in their house. I found a neatly folded paper in the back of a desk drawer with strange drawings of a grid with circles in it. Unfolding the paper, I realized that it was the password key Eric and I made when we were kids. There were pages of passwords for different bosses. Metal Man, Air Man, Bubble Man, Heat Man. It was like a documented history of our progress through the game. On the final page, a large do not throw away was written and underlined twice in thick black marker. I turned it over to reveal the ultimate password, Dr. Wiley. We did it. We actually made it to him. I had all but forgotten. I wish I could tell you that the bridge Mega Man built between us was as metaphorically grand and strong as the Golden Gate Bridge itself, but that would be a lie. It was narrow, rickety, and hastily thrown together, an intimidating bridge over a vast chasm, swinging slightly in the breeze like the kind you see in movies. In plain words, although we were able to become slight friends, that needle didn't move a whole lot growing up, and my sister and I still aren't very close. She lives in Canada and has her own life, just as I have mine here in Portland. We talk around the holidays and each other's birthday, but just like when we were kids, not a lot of overlap. However, that small foundation of empathy remains. It's small, but it's there. Going after Dr. Wiley gave us the chance to create a new bit of culture for our new family, one that we made together, and in the end, one that was a win-win. While Mega Man's influence had mostly spread through video games, an unlikely hero emerged from a different arena. Raheem Megaran Jarbo has been making music inspired by video games for over a decade now, and has been a member of the gaming community for much longer. His passion for Mega Man sparked a following that would include the creator of Mega Man himself, Keiji Inafune. The first officially licensed artist to have Capcom's blessing, Megaran creates music featuring scores from the original Mega Man games. His lyrics include the story of Dr. Wily's descent into madness and what it means to be the Blue Bomber. Though busy touring all over the world, we were able to catch Megaran at PAX South. He sat down with us to chat about the origin of his music, how a few chance encounters with video game giants steered his career, and ultimately, how Mega Man influenced his art. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, when we decided that the theme of this episode was going to be Mega Man, one of our first thoughts was we can't have a Mega Man episode and not ask Mega Ran to be a guest. So thanks again. Thank you for having me. So getting into it, initially you performed under the name Random. What moment signaled the change to definitively be known as Mega Ran? Well, if I had to think about an exact moment, I think that um, it was probably around the time of the release of the Mega Ran 9 album. And things, you know, momentum starts picking up. And then when I would play shows, I noticed people referred to me as Mega Ran and would sometimes bill me as Mega Ran. And, and I was like, wow, this is a name that's beginning to kind of take a life of its own on. And so at that point, I started using Random, a.k.a. Mega Ran. And... That was just too long to fit on most <laughs> pieces of paper, flyers, 
CD covers, um, and it just became too confusing. Um, honestly, I, it was something that I realized that the, the word random in itself is very difficult to search for. It makes me very difficult to search for online. So it was just a matter of increasing my accessibility by going with mega rant because it is a more Google friendly term, I guess. And, and that was really the main reason I just felt like at the beginning, random was making songs about mega man. And then I feel like now with the newest album I did, it's called random and it's by an artist named mega Rand. So there's a bit of a full circle thing going on there that I planned. So it's just showing the growth and evolution of the, the character of random. Wow, that's really cool how it started as random and now it's kind of the outside looking in uh, kind of thing. Yeah, that was my plan. I wanted to kind of expand it and and it, you know, sometimes it doesn't always go how you planned it. And this wasn't exactly the plan, but I feel like it worked out the best way it could for everybody. So I've actually constructed this, I guess you could call it a fanciful idea, that Mega Man was the first game you played as a child, and it was so impactful that it shaped the very core of the, who you are today. Just how far off from the truth am I? Well, it's not the first game I played at all. Um, I grew up playing Atari 2600, but Mega Man, the story of how I even you know got into Mega Man is definitely the reason why Mega Man is... is uh, such a big part of what I am. So I, I guess about had to be 80, I don't know, 88, 80, maybe 88. Cause that was when Mega Man two came out. I had a subscription to Nintendo power magazine. And I think maybe the second or third issue was a huge Mega Man two spread. And at that time I hadn't even heard of Mega Man one, but I saw the cover it was so colorful. The characters were so awesome. The bosses, the maps were all laid out on the, pages and I knew I got to get this game for Christmas. So I begged my mother and pleaded and wrote it on every Christmas list and put sticky notes around the house that Mega Man 2, Mega Man 2. <laughs> and one day she, we went to the mall and she was with me and she's like, what was that game you were talking about again? And I was like, oh, it's on Mega Man 2 and it was $50. And she's like, yeah, right. I'm like, no, all my dreams were dashed. And so I knew I wasn't going to get it. Now, another trip to the mall, I saw Mega Man 1. And I was like, whoa, okay. And the best news about that is that it was in the bargain bin. So it was 19.99, And my mother was like, all right, well, I'll get you that. And so she got me Mega Man 1. And it was, she's like, I'm still not buying you another game for a long time. So you better get all you can out of this game. And so I did. It was an excruciatingly hard game, but I put so much time into it to the point where I memorized everything, found every little glitch and secret, and beat the game up and down, back and forward. And so by the time I finally beat Mega Man 1, Mega Man 2 was cheaper because Mega Man 3 came out the following year. So the previous game was always a little less money. So I was finally able to get Mega Man 2 a year late, and man, it just it changed my life. And I felt like I had really earned that playing experience. So my mother inadvertently helped me to truly appreciate it more so than I would have if she had just picked it up for me, and I hadn't even played Mega Man 1. So 
I think that that experience with Mega Man 1 and playing it so much is what gave it. And the music, I used to pause the game and record the music on my tape recorder. And then I would put the music on my in a cassette on my Walkman, and I'd go to school with it, and I would write something cool on it, like rap jams or something, <laughs> so that kids didn't know that I was, uh, you know, playing video game music in my headphones. One side of the tape was me recording Yo MTV raps, and the other side was me playing Mega Man music with the with the game paused. And that was one of the first games that when you pause the game, you could still hear the music. And so that was really special. And I think that they, they put so much effort into that music in the game that it stuck with me forever. And that was really it. I think that your story wasn't too far from the actual you know, occurrences. Sweet. That's a really incredible story. I wonder if now, because video games are less of a like social pariah situation as they were when we were younger, when like, oh, you're a nerd, you're playing video games. I wonder if kids would be less inclined to hide their video game music under, <laughs> you know, raps or Katy Perry or something like that. <laughs> that is interesting. You mentioned on your website that you had Capcom's blessing to continue to rap about Mega Man. So what was it like hearing from the creators of Mega Man? And were there any conflicts in regarding to uh, those soundtrack samples or any licensing? No, it was very scary. I can tell you that. Because I never sought out to get their attention or to get on their radar. I just put it out, put out a free album on the 20th anniversary of Mega Man's release. And which is we're actually coming up on that, I guess, again. Well, we just passed the... 30th, yeah. So that's, I put it out on the internet, not thinking anybody would hear it, honestly, or even like it. I mean, Mega Man was mixed with hip hop? Like, what is this? So I even considered changing my name. I considered like putting it out under a fake page. So I think I created a new MySpace page and did that just in case they found it and like shut it down. So I put it out and then like maybe a day or two later, IGN found it and reviewed it. And I don't know how that happened, but I think that was the beginning of the floodgates opening. So I get an email or maybe a MySpace message from Capcom. Like I see the big C in the profile pic and I'm like, whoa, why are they messaging me? And the title on the I think the subject was like, about this Mega Man album. Oh <laughs> God. Like, oh, brother. like it was so scary. And this guy's like, hey, my name's Seth, and I work at Capcom, and we just got wind of your projects. And I'm like, oh, no. And I think just to kind of troll me a little bit, he skipped a bunch of lines after that, so that I had to scroll down to see what was next. And then the next sentence was, don't worry, this isn't a cease and desist. <laughs> and it's well Oh, good, good. This is after like eight page break lines and I'm like oh really why did you do that <laughs> he's like well I work at Capcom Unity which is our you know online internet community of all things Capcom basically we scour the internet and look for really cool fan art projects like this one that paid you know tribute to our games so this has been getting a lot of attention online we like it with this one to let you know that and I'm like, whoa, really? And uh, and then we're like, yeah. In fact, Comic-Con is coming up in San Diego. 
would you like to come? And I'm like, well, yeah, absolutely. At this time, I'd never been to a Comic-Con, and this was the Comic-Con San Diego. And they were inviting me. They're like, wow, this, this album is actually making some noise on the Internet. So how would you like to come and sign, you know, just sign autographs for an hour at the Capcom booth? I'm like, absolutely. So I did that. And then from there, that began, you know, my relationship with Capcom. And uh, it's it's still a pretty surreal story to tell. Like, I didn't expect any of that to happen. It's just something you create because you like it, not because you want to, you know, make or be a success off of it, you know. And I think that those are the best projects, the ones that come from the heart, the truly passion projects. And I'm glad that they recognize that passion. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, my my follow up to that was uh, on the other side of that coin. Like, what would have happened if they didn't give you your blessing? If IGN didn't pick it up? Oh, they would have just said, "Take this off the internet right now," which <laughs> would have been fine. I mean, I think that you can't really kill anything on the internet. So, I do believe that you know uh, the torrents and other places would have kept it alive. Um, even a few people have told me at shows that they found the album in torrents, like connected to a torrent of all the Mega Man games or something like that. Oh, wow. Attached inside of there has been a file of my album. So I think that's amazing. So I don't know if they would have killed it, which probably did help, you know, the fact that it did get to stay around. It's like, well, if you crush someone, you know, this poor soul who just wanted to make a tribute project to a game he loved 20 years ago, you know, yeah. it then, you know, it, it becomes bad press, you know, and I think at the, in the process, they would make me a martyr in that situation. And, and so it's easier to, to say, you know, we like it and we appreciate it. And one thing they did mention is that they, they thought it was tasteful. They liked the fact that it didn't have any foul language. So they, they did appreciate that what I was doing and, and in the manner that I did it. So that was cool. But otherwise, they would have just lived on, you know, secret forums and torrents. Would you have kept creating the music even if they were like, excuse me, sir, knock it off, please? Would you have been like, ho, ho, you can't stop me when it's secret or something oh, like that? Oh, no, no. I would be very afraid. Like, I don't have money to fight lawyers and especially not over something that I really have no legal leg to stand on with. You know, this is their product and they have their right to tell me what to do with it. So um, I would have just backed off. I absolutely would have. I probably would have went on to Final Fantasy VII a lot sooner. (laughs) (laughs) I think it it might have sped up the process of what I was doing. I I did Final Fantasy VII and Castlevania Symphony of the Night and other games that I really liked. So it probably would have just, you know, sped that process. Or it would have scared me so much that I never would have wanted to touch a video game sample again. Video game characters in these early generations, like the OG Nintendo, typically lacked any kind of personality depth, often leaving these emotional chasms that players would then have to kind of bridge with their own ideas of character strengths, their likes, their dislikes, to create some kind of connection between the player and the character. But when you write these songs about video game characters that have so much blank space on the portrait of their character, where do you pull the context to fill that in? And additionally, do you think some of who you are or who you want to be ends up on that canvas in the process? Oh, 
uh, absolutely to answer the second part of that. I feel like, you know, I like the fact that earlier characters didn't have that depth. So you're able to add that third dimension with your own identity and your own wants and needs out of life. You could put that into that situation. And I think that's what led to the Mega Man um, tribute albums is that I thought, man, Mega Man has to run from left to right on all these levels to fight this person who just begs for mercy. And then you let him go and he does it again and again and again. And so I was like, he's got to get tired of this at some point. So I would write imaginary sequels to my favorite games, like in my sketchbook. And Mega Man was one of them. I remember Mega Man two and three came out pretty close back to back. So then I wrote a Mega Man four script and storyboard called Mega Man for the revenge. And in this one, you know, he refused to accept Dr. Wiley's apology and he like blows him away. And then everyone's angry at Mega Man. He has to run away because he did something wrong. And at that time, in my own life, I had done something wrong and wished I could run away. So I definitely see a lot of projecting your own situations onto your favorite characters or even things that you would want to be. So wanting to be a hero, wanting to be a person who stands up for everyone and also thinking about the stresses that could come with that. And I think that's all that would go into when I would play Mega Man games and a lot of other games. Kind of actually in the similar vein, like over the years, you've used Mega Man sprites and marketing materials, but changed the pixel skin color to reflect your own. Um, so outside of the obvious shared heroics and maybe even the, the Mega Man for the revenge um, kind of running away theme, um, what of yourself do you see in Mega Man? I see myself as a, as a people pleaser who is forever um, connected to, you know, to the process and of helping other people. And that's something that I feel I've always had and probably always will have is that innate desire to, to help and to assist and however I can. And just knowing that my creation, like Mega Man's creation, was not necessarily asked for, but it was, it was a gift given. And therefore, because of that gift given to you, feeling the a responsibility is back. And that's really been a big, big theme in my life. So I always make sure to try to do that. And I do think at the expense of myself or my own health and sanity, sometimes, um, you know, sometimes there's a, a point where you give a little too much of yourself. And I feel like that's Mega Man. You know, Mega Man doesn't have time for like relationships. You know, it's not like friends. It's just him and a doctor and a dog, you know. And so, yeah, I feel like that's that's definitely hugely connected to my own story coming up. So the theme for this episode is actually orbits Mega Man 2 a lot. Um, one of the stories we talk about is about Mega Man 2 between a couple of sisters. Johnny brings up Mega Man 2. You brought up the first Mega Man game being that you wanted to play was 2. Uh, whenever I am preparing for like a big meeting or about to do something scary like calling a pizza delivery, I listen to Dr. Wily's theme for Mega Man 2 because of how it is probably one of the most epic video game songs ever, in my opinion. And I'm 4,000% certain the end goal of Dr. Wily's theme when they were um, making that music was to evoke this sense of bravery and spirit from the player because the end of the game was near. Now, when you write music, what is your end goal? Is it 
how the music will make the listener feel, or is it more to connect with your listener through a mutual love of video games? Well, I do. I think a lot about how I'm going to try to make the listener feel. That's that's hugely important. So I make sure that I can create some sort of connection, hopefully, usually with my own self. I think I find that to be most important and, and therapeutic a lot of times is involving my own experiences. Um, and it's just been, luckily, I guess, and, and coincidentally, that I'm not the only one to experience those. And I think that makes me feel a whole lot better about all of, a lot of the things that I've experienced is that people have also done that. So when I talk about certain things growing up and being ostracized for playing video games or having video games as my escape from reality and and that they like almost literally saved my life and people can relate to those experiences and I, I think that helps me a lot. So I'm really a lot about putting my own self into these records because it's literally like my diary. You know, I don't have a diary. I did when I was young, but I think that music now is my diary. So it's much, it's mostly for myself, but in the same time, I see that a lot of the situations I've been through and feelings I've felt that a whole lot of folks can relate to on a lot of different levels. So it's, it's to help me, but in the, in the process, I believe it helps the listener. And that's fantastic. And I've most certainly connected with, with your music on that level as well. So thank you for that. So as a last big question, um, kind of a fun one here, uh, everyone on the no continues media crew feels eternally indebted to Keiji Unifune for all of his creations over the years. You mentioned in while we were setting this interview up that you had met him. So can you kind of set yes. the stage for how that interaction went down? Okay. Well, there's two meetings that I could talk about. And well, one wasn't great, but the other one was amazing. So uh, right before I played PAX Prime 2013, our stage manager was getting us ready. And he's like, um, you know, you guys are on in two minutes. Just make sure everything is set up. And I'm like, yes, we're good to go. We're good to go. And it's like, oh, and someone's in the front row that told me to send you a message. Um, in a, in a fune? And I'm like, what did you just say? And he's like, yeah, some guy in a fune? Yeah, he, he told me to send you a message that he'll be in the front watching and good luck. And I'm like, what? This is before I'd even realized he was going to be there that weekend. I guess the weekend they launched Mighty Number no. 9. And so much stuff started going through my head right before I had to go on stage. And that's probably the most nervous I've ever been. You always have a little bit of nervous energy. But at this time, I'm like a freaking fireball of nerves. Like, whoa, he's going to be right in the front. Oh, my gosh, we got to do this. And I went to all the band members like, hey, guys, I don't know if you understand, but KJ Anaphone is right out there. We got to kill this. We got to kill this. And they're like, it's okay. Calm down, man. Calm down. And they're like patting me on the back and everything. And it got a little crazy. And um, after that, um, through his translator, he told us that we did a really great job. So that was amazing. And it wasn't great because, only to say it wasn't great because I didn't have a long time with him. And so I always wished like one day I'd be able to sit and talk to him. Fast forward to this past fall. I went to Japan for a chiptune festival. And while I was there, because I had done some music for Mighty Number no. 9, and, he, and they told me that Inafune wanted, he like handpicked me to do the ending credits theme of Mighty Number no. 9. 
Oh, no way. I'm like, yeah. wow. Why? What? Why? How? What? Who? And he said that nobody embodied the spirit of Mega Man in current music the way that I did. And he appreciated that. And I was like, whoa, that's, this is an amazing honor. Man, and I, and I thanked them all and I wrote them an email saying, you know, if there's ever one day that I could personally thank him, I want to be able to do that. And um, just left it alone. And then months later, when I was in Japan, uh, Nick Yu of Comcept emails me back and says, hey, I understand you're in Japan. And Afune-san would like to meet you. And I'm like, what? So it happened. Uh, and I'm very happy to say we, we went to the Comcept offices and I had probably 35, 40 minutes to sit down with Inafune and just pick his brain. And it was the most magical moment I've had in like recent memory. You know, I put that up there. It's like getting married, putting out the first Mega Man album, meeting Casey Inafune, sitting down in his office together and discussing Mega Man character designs and discussing what he feels about rap music and just other things like that. It was just such a magical time. And like, these are the, like the memories that are forever burned in my head. And I, I would, I had a friend with me and I would tap him like every five seconds. Like, dude, this is really happening. <laughs> this is really happening. And it was absolutely unreal, man, just to be able to sit there and pick his brain. So I have to thank those guys for taking the time to do that. I thought that was awesome. And I'll never forget it. And we, we, we shared some laughs and we, we shot a little video and I kind of got a chance to crack him up. I, I did a little video for my Instagram and I was like, Hey, I, uh, this is Megaran and I'm here with my dad. And so everybody <laughs> in the room just busts out laughing. And, uh, that was, that was awesome. And, um, I was just really, really honored to be able to sit down with him and, not just that, but, you know, as a, from fan to, you know, to creator, but what made it the most surreal is that he looked at me as, as a peer in this situation, like as a fellow creator and as a fellow artist. And, you know, I, I, and I just, I still can't even like fully comprehend it, but, you know, it's something that you never set out to do in life, but it happens anyway, you know? And I think that that's one of the great things about living life because you just never, ever know. You know, I wouldn't have ever thought 10 years ago when I made that first project that I would ever sit down in a room with the guy who created it, you know, so you just never know. Chase those dreams, kids. Holy moly. <laughs> That's an incredible story. Wow. Oh, man. Dude, thanks for sharing that with us. That We kind of on the on the flip side of that feel the same way. We're all smiles over here and just super grateful that you were you were able to join us today and, and tell us your stories and um, where can our listeners find your music or listen to your Matt Mania pro wrestling podcast or uh, find out when you'll be dropping by a town near them? Most of the stuff is at megaran.com. Uh, also has links to my podcast, has links to my music and merchandise. If you want to get there quickly, it's megaranmusic.com, which will send you right to my Bandcamp page, which has music ranging from zero to other amounts and there's also plenty of merch at megaranmerch.com and probably the quickest way to get updates is megaran on twitter 
And since it's really close together and the M and the R are capital, it looks like Meg Ryan, but but it's not though. <laughs> it's not Meg. <laughs> One of the smartest in the world, amazing advancements within the fields of robotics. Money was no object, but he never felt the need to make a profit with projects. Had a best friend, Dr. Light, they could have changed the world if they stayed together. Family competition during the middle rivalry, then one day it changed forever. Our opening music on today's show was composed by Matt Hunter, also known as Mechlo. That's spelled M-E-C-H-L-O. You can find his music at mechlo.bandcamp.com and at soundcloud.com slash mechlo. The song currently playing was composed by Megaran. You can find his music at megaranmusic.com. Thank you so much for listening to our show. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, please subscribe to our channel. You can find us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app under No Continues Media or on our website, nocontinuesmedia.net slash virtual recollection. Until next time, I'm Janessa. And I'm Johnio. And this was Virtual Recollection. Everything he was old. Do, 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 do. Mic drop. Hey. No continue.